0: Okay, this morning, now having prayed, we will turn again to the book of Isaiah. And this Lord's Day morning, we will be in Isaiah chapter 44. We are in the, Isaiah's prophecies of what it's going to be like when the people, uh, well, it's prophecies of uh, comfort and promise the poor exiles that are in Babylon and Assyria, that God loves them, He's going to take care of them, and at the appointed time, He is going to bring them back, bring His people back into the promised land. Isaiah gives prophecies of comfort and assurance. Now, these people are very hard-hearted that he's prophesying to, and there are probably not many of them listening but God does have a remnant, so some most likely are listening to these prophecies of Isaiah and taking comfort in them. All right, last week we were on Isaiah 43, and um, God had just given them some very good news about um, that He was going to uh, bring down Babylon. By sending the Medo-Persians against them. And that he was going to restore them. And he gave them promises of the new covenant. And um, God informed them that he had created them for them to give him glory. And then he charges his people by uh, neglecting him. They didn't really seem to care and charged them that they had burdened Him with their sins and iniquities. But God assured them that He is merciful, He will forgive them their sins, and He will restore them, not because they deserve it, but because of His mercy and grace. So that will bring us to Isaiah 44 this morning. And Dana, I believe I asked you to read us Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 8.
1: But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshon, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, Belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nations and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none.
0: In these verses, God reminds them... Of his commitment to them. God has chosen them. God has formed them. God has chosen them. And so he has a commitment to his people. Alright, there's two things God says through Isaiah right at the beginning. That Jacob, or Israel, is God's servant. And that he is, that is Israel, is chosen. They are His chosen people. <clears throat> now, we've seen time and again that the Hebrews were not chosen because they were any better than anyone else. That anybody that reads through the Old Testament wonders why does God even put up with these people? They are so awful. But I guess we should ask ourselves the same thing: Why does God put up with with us? If we saw ourselves as God really saw us, we would wonder. So, God has not chosen them because of anything good in them. Uh, Jill, will you read for us Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8?
2: For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt.
0: All right. And let's read verse 9 too. I think that's important.
2: Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments.
0: All right, verse 9 reminds us of, again of God's commitment to them. He says that he keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations, those who love him and keep his commandments. So God is committed to them. God has chosen them. Now, is um, what we have is God starts out in these verses by telling them they are holy people to the Lord. And they're not holy because of anything good in them, but they are holy because God has chosen them and His true people are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ even though He hasn't even come yet. Now, He chose them to be a people for Himself. But, He did not set His love on them because of anything in them. In other words, what God is saying here is, I haven't chosen you because of what you've done. I have chosen you in spite of what you have done. There wasn't anything in them. It's just because the Lord loved them. And that He was going to keep the oath He had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's only because of the Lord's commitment to them that He loved them and that He has redeemed them. They were not more in number than any other people. They were the least of all the peoples. But yet, in spite of all these things, God had set His love upon them. We don't know why. But God has set His love upon them and He has redeemed them. And he keeps his covenant and mercy to them in spite of what they do. So there's nothing for them to be proud of. <clears throat> and then he tells them over here in the passage that we read in Isaiah 44. He says, "Here, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So, and he notes there, this is because of God's unconditional election. He chooses whom He pleases, not because of anything in them. There's nothing in them that moves Him. He chooses them simply because He loves them. He hasn't chosen any of us because of anything good in us. In in the uh, all the people that have ever been born, all deserve to go to hell. They are under His. They would have all. God would be perfectly just to, for His wrath to be upon them forever. But He has chosen some, regardless of how wicked they were. And He had chosen these Hebrews. Uh, so he, he does that in nations, and He does that in um, individuals. Not because they're better than anyone else. And this is called unconditional election. We'll get into a little bit of doctrine here this morning. We have the word tulip that Calvinists hold to. Five points of Calvinism. And this is the second point. The first point being total depravity or total inability of man to do anything good in God's sight. But for some reason, he unconditionally elects some to everlasting life. And he had elected... Jacob, his servant, Israel, to be his people. Not that all of them were going to be saved, but he did have a remnant within them. So this is the doctrine of unconditional election. And Table Talk in 1999 went through Isaiah. And I want to read what he said in here, whoever the devotional writer was. I don't know who it was. But he hits the nail right on the head here. And um, I wanted to read this to you about unconditional election. He's commenting on verses 6 through 8 on this passage. And he makes a statement, quote, Many people in the Christian church have a difficult time accepting the doctrine of Election. They say it would be unfair for God to choose some people and not others. They also argue that it is up to individual people to choose to have faith or not. When two people hear the gospel and only one responds in faith, it is because that person willed it to be so. It is not because God gave one the grace to respond while passing the other. Rather, for some reason, the person who did respond had the capacity, the desire, the will, and the moral character to do so. To the person who rejects election, it is unfathomable that God would choose one sinner while rejecting another. There is a deeply emotional response against this doctrine because it seems so unfair and capricious. So this is not a doctrine (coughs) that you would go into most churches and start talking to people about. They would kick you out. This is a hated doctrine by most of the Christian church in this country today. Anybody have any comments on that? I do. Okay. Darlene? I think it's a matter of pride. I want it to be about me making the decision which makes me sovereign. My will is sovereign,
2: not God's will. And people have a prideful
0: problem, I think. And one thing I have found out, y'all probably knew this a lot more than me, you can throw Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture to a person who doesn't hold to the Reformed faith. And it doesn't do anything to them. They don't even listen to what you're saying. They're certainly not going to consider what you're saying, no matter how scriptural it is. They just have their mind made up. It's a condition which you would call unteachable. They go into it, and as
2: I've shared before, I was raised in Arminianism. They go into it with the attitude of, the right word? the right word. But I will say that um, when I began reading through the Bible this year, I, I, I don't know if anybody has a problem with this, but I write in my Bible. And I had a different Bible this year. So I began underlining every time the scripture brought up, whether Old or New Testament, brought up the word election. And I have two sisters, a brother, uh, a brother that I believe is a brother in Christ, who all reject election, and I told Steve, I said, I think I need to just not say a word. Just take every scripture that I find that refers to election, type it up, and say, I love you. Please read these.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's what you get is a problem uh, that you're wondering if you're casting what is holy to dogs. Good morning. There's some Sorry, seats back know. here.
3: Is this them? Charlie. That'd be me. Okay, I wasn't sure if you were coming to Sunday school or not. Yeah, this is Charlie Ray and Victoria. 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 Uh, they're yeah. they're friends of mine, Doug Damos, and uh, you're all, you're in Columbia, right? Yes, sir. Lexington. Did you have your list? Yeah.
0: Mike, I believe you had a comment.
3: Yeah, the Baptist brother of mine that was most responsible for witnessing to me when I was an unbeliever. Uh, he's in glory now. He was a real believer. But we had uh, conversations about this after I became a, a Christian. And he he would rather, he, he said he would rather that God not be sovereign than man not have free will. Yeah. And that's, you can throw all kinds of scriptures at him, like you said. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference.
0: So you know what the ultimate authority in that man's life is? Yeah. It's not the scriptures. Well,
2: then there's a difference between free will and sovereign
3: will. You can have a free will. Yeah, we do have free will. sovereign. Right. He was talking about, yeah. you know, man makes ability. the choice. There's no such thing as election. Yeah. yeah.
0: There's a difference between... Free will and ability. We have free will to choose God in our unregenerate state, but we don't have the ability to do it. Nobody coerces us and says, you you be an unbeliever, you be an unbeliever, you have to be an unbeliever. Nobody coerces us. We freely choose what is
3: wicked. One last comment. What Mike said, his friend said, reminded me. There's somebody else who said that, most famously that they'd rather man have free will and God not be sovereign Satan in the garden of Eden. That, that's pretty much what he said
2: well I think that um, election is emphasized in the scripture that talks about how God before they were born before they did one act of human uh, behavior God loved Jacob but Esau hated it. that is such a clear election issue why yeah. there's no a, explanation and it had nothing to do with these children's wills they weren't even born yet Yeah. that one I, I, I've never found any Arminian who can explain that to me
3: oh yeah Let's say God looked down the quarter of time and yeah. saw what decision was made by Esau
0: because God knew the end yeah. from the beginning alright well I've never had that one proposed yeah. <laughs> I remember Ken Gentry said he read that to a Romans 9 to an Armenian one time and he said, I don't like the way you read that. <laughs> <laughs> Were you going to say something? That was Charles? No. Oh, okay. I want to read what the canons of, I guess it's pronounced, or canons of Dort. Uh, this is to me, uh, everything I've ever read, the most clear explanation of the doctrine of election. And it's Article 7, Canons of North. It reads, Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, He hath out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of His own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault, from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction. A certain number of persons to, uh, to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. This elect number, though by nature neither better nor more deserving than others, but with them involved in one common misery, God hath decreed to give to Christ to be saved by Him, and effectually to call and draw them to His communion by His Word and Spirit, to bestow upon them true faith, justification, and sanctification, and having powerfully preserved them in the fellowship of His Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of His mercy, for the praise of His glorious grace. I think that's just a very good description of it, very clear. And it's what they use for their proof, their proof text is um, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. And I'm going to ask Mike to read that
3: for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us.
0: Okay. So. <clears throat> yes, very strong scriptural proof right there. But the doctor, He chose us. We didn't choose Him. And most likely, if you have Christian friends that are not from a Reformed church, they're going to tell you, we chose Him. And the Scriptures clearly state He chose us in Christ. And truly
3: Christian friends? Well, <clears throat> that's... <they. laughs> I think the guy that witnessed, to me, day after day for hours, yeah, I think he was a believer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah I don't, faith in Jesus Christ. Depend on Him for your salvation.
3: He was an Arminian.
0: Yeah. Some theologians would argue that Arminianism, you can't be saved if you're an Armenian. I don't agree with that. I think you can 'Cause I think that the minimum requirement is trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, just as He's offered in the gospel. <clears throat>
2: yeah.
0: Okay. Good discussion. Anything else now on God's unconditional election? Very important for us to understand. Okay, now, in verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you, fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshuram, whom I have chosen. Uh, He reminds them of His sovereignty. God created them, God formed them, and God made them. And as He said, God has redeemed them, and they are His servants. Whom he has chosen, so he is sovereign in all things. If there's anything that God isn't sovereign in, God isn't in God. He has to be sovereign in everything. Okay, in verses three and four concerns God. All right, let me let me have some people look some things up here, and uh, we're going to go over here. To the Mac um, Masters, and just go down the row there, and let's look up these verses: Joel two twenty-eight. Yeah, that that would be um, for you, Jim. Yeah, and then on down the row, Acts two fourteen through seventeen, Psalm eighty-seven four through six, and then Psalm one seventeen, which is I think only two verses. So that's not too overwhelming I'll tell you when to read verses 3 and 4 concern, concern God's pouring out of His Spirit in the future <clears throat> including during the New Covenant times that's when God's Spirit was really poured out There's, we read of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant but that is just a drip here and a drip there as compared to God pouring it out in the New Covenant Let's have Joel 2.28 read for us.
2: Joel 2.28 And it shall come to pass afterward that I shall pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions.
0: Alright, in Acts 2.14-17 But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall
2: come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit On all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams.
0: Okay. So like I said, uh, God's Spirit was not nearly as active in the Old Covenant as is promised in the New Covenant. Joel promises that. Joel promises in the Old Testament. Now this is the Old Testament. That God will pour out His Spirit on Jewish flesh, right? On the Jews. Is that wrong? <laughs> he pours out His Spirit on all flesh. And then we see that that was a prophecy that was fulfilled, um, at Pentecost. And Peter, in the first, in his sermon at Pentecost, shows that this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that God would pour out His Spirit not only on the Jews, but on all flesh. Alright, let's have Psalm 87 verses 4 through 6 read.
2: Shall he said this and that man with one word, and that the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall
0: count when He lighteth up the people that this man was born. In you hear that? He pronounced all those Hebrew words right, all those names right. Man, we struggle, but you've already got it. congratulations. Okay, all right, yeah. Here's here's a, a prophecy again of the Gentiles being called in. And let's read Psalm One Seventeen. Praise the
2: Lord, all nations; extol Him, all people. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the
0: Lord. All right, Um, we have the days coming, according to Isaiah, according to all the Old Covenant prophets, that the Gentiles are going to be called in. And we see that they were we're here. We've been called in. Glorious days are ahead, not only for the Jews, we read, but when the Spirit is poured out. It is for the Jews and the Gentiles, all nations. And it's all over the Old Testament. Some people seem to miss it, but it's all over the Old Testament. Um and let's see. In Psalm 100, verse 1, quoting ASV, um, see, so make a joyful noise unto Jehovah, All ye lands. All ye lands. The Jews were called to be priests, to evangelize the world, just like we're called today. They didn't do it. They were miserable failures. But Christ has promised to be with us. And that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we are to baptize the nations. Teaching them to observe all that's been commanded. So the Great Commission was all over the Old Testament. Israel failed. We're still under the Great Commission. And Christ has promised that we will baptize the nations. And teach the nations. And disciple the nations. So wonderful news here. And the pouring out of the Spirit. And then in verses 6 through 8, Yahweh again states that He is their Redeemer. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, verse, oh, verse 3 and 4 concerning God's pouring out of His Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit brings revival, not men. I'm sorry, I skipped over this. We see that the Holy Spirit causes revival where He wants to, when He wants to, how He wants to, and it's not up to man. How many times do we see around here, oh, let's have a revival? Well, unless the Holy Spirit says let's have a revival, guess what? (coughs) There is not going to be a revival. So it's up to the Holy Spirit. It's not up to men. So the Spirit will cause them and the Gentiles, as we just read, to be faithful. In verse 5, be faithful, which had seldom happened before. We see how unfaithful Israel is time and time again in the Old Covenant. But here in verse 5 he says, One will say, I am the Lord's, or I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. We are going to have covenant faithfulness by men someday. New Testament Christians will be more faithful than the Old Covenant. Okay, thanks. I'm sorry. I just skipped over that part. Any questions or comments on anything so far through verse 5? All right, verses 6 through 8. Yahweh again states that He is their Redeemer. I'm the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. He states that there is but one God and Redeemer. I'm the first and the last and besides me there is no God. He challenges, challenges any other so-called God to step forth and compare himself to him, and compare themselves to him. says, besides me there is no God, and who can proclaim as I do? Let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient peoples and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. So he challenges any other so-called God, any of the idols, to step forth and challenge him. And he tells his people not to fear because of all of these things above He is the God. He is God. He is their God, maker of heaven and earth, their redeemer. He made them. He formed them. And these other so-called gods, as we're going to see in the next section, are nothing but the work of men's hands. They're totally impotent. They have no power. They have no authority. And if God says He's going to bring them back from captivity, He will. And then He tells His people to witness for Him. He says, you are my witnesses in verse 8. Is there a God besides me? See, they're supposed to be witnessing about His greatness, but they're not. They're living lives of fear, evidently. He says, you're my witnesses. You need to be telling the pagans about me. Okay. That completes that. Derek Kidner's... States in his commentary concerning these verses, he says these verses, verses six through eight, give the very essence of these chapters. He's talking about the rest of the chapters in Isaiah. And these chapters, with their emphasis on God as Israel's champion, their exclusive monotheism, their stress on prediction, and their reassuring tone toward diffident Israel toward disobedient Israel. So this kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book according to Derek Kidner. Alright, that's all I have on these first eight verses. That's as far as we will get today because it's about 1040. Anybody have anything to add? <clears throat> right, if not, then um Bud Will you close us in prayer this morning?